Welcome back to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse, our podcast about cultural democracy. I'm sat in London, Owen is in Helsinki, it's a frosty, cool day here, and I'm going to talk to Owen about something he's been to recently called Slush. I have no idea what it is, so Owen's going to explain all about it, and we'll go from there. Owen, over to you. Okay, uh, Slush is a technology event. Uh, a technology and startup event, and it started in 2008, and it was very, very small in 2008. It was started by Peter Westerbecker, whose name may not be familiar, but was the CEO of Rovio, makers of Angry Birds, which of course has been a global success and makes Rovio one of Finland's richest companies. Followed shortly and more recently by Supercell, who have made other computer games, Clash of Clans, and things like that. So, Peter Westerbecker decided in 2008 that students ought to be trained or get the opportunity to participate in startup culture. And so he started this very small event called Slush, which took place originally in an old tram depot. For the first couple of years, there were about 800 to 1,000 people at it. And you could rent booths, and Helsinki University and Alto University, basically their students organised it on a voluntary basis. And then in 2011, they got in a CEO, and in 2011, there were 1,500 attendees, and then by 2013, there were 7,000, and last year, which is to say 10 days ago, there were something like 20 to 25,000 people there. And it's grown from being a very small DIY kind of festival where you could go along with this little idea you had for a startup and people would wander around to it being something like Future Fest in atmosphere if Future Fest was two or three times bigger and very had very high-tech special effects. So that's what I've been at. It's two days long, followed by a party, and it consists of lots and lots of different talks from people we're supposed to be impressed by, through to conversations, fireside chats, and they literally have these fires on the stage so that there are fireside chats, accompanied by hundreds of stalls which have large companies you've heard of, plus things like the Indian government shipped over 20 startups and formed a little alley down one part of the exhibition, which was an Indian startup alley. Korea have the same thing, Japan have the same thing. So it's a, an odd mixture, and I spent the last two days of last week at that. And Owen, did you discover any glimmers of cultural democracy in the event? And were there any anti-capitalist or, or alternative business models, like cooperative versions or... I guess, yeah, alternative structures for, for setting up startups there. What was your, were there any inspiring examples of that sort of thing? Well, interestingly, I've been to the last three in a row. And then before that, there were several years when I didn't go. And then before that, I used to go. But the last three years have each had a distinct atmosphere. They've always had themes. So three years ago, Al Gore was the keynote speaker. And he spoke about climate change and did his PowerPoint presentation showing how we're all doomed, but there's still time for us to pull back from the brink if we work together. But that that official theme didn't, didn't really thread through what was actually there. And what I found interesting is trying to work out what the theme is from what's actually there. So three years ago, people were still in full startup mode. Everybody was looking to 
make a fortune very quickly. And people like Uber and Airbnb were spoken about in hushed terms as though they'd found the magic formula, the magic beans. And if only we could all be like them. And it's that, a lot of that is the stuff that I characterize as disrupting the spoon industry. I mean, in the sense that it's people making up solutions to problems that don't really exist and then trying to sell them to people after they've convinced them the problem does exist. So, you know, that's why I say I talk about disrupting the spoon industry, because spoons are fine. There's no massive demand for disrupting spoons. But nonetheless, there's somebody going to do that. So three years ago, that was the basic thrust of everything. And there were lots of talks about how to develop an exit strategy. So it was quite obvious these people who were disrupting the spoon industry didn't have an abiding desire to to make people's spoon life better. They just found an answer to a problem that didn't exist. And their, their main task was to figure out how to sell it to Google or Microsoft or somebody, some venture capitalists as fast as possible so they could get out and do something else. This year, the ambience seemed very different. There seemed to be an informal agreement amongst most of the people whose presentations I attended that they should mention social responsibility, the sharing economy, zero waste, and the impending global doom that we face unless we face up to these kind of issues. Two presentations stand out in particular, although there there were quite a lot. The first one was by John Schoolcraft, who is not the marketing director at Oakley. Oakley, the makers of of oat milk. The disruptive makers of oat milk, we might add. He was very interesting. It's not quite what you were asking in the sense that Oakley aren't a socialist cooperative. But he did make a convincing case for the fact that Oakley also isn't just in the business of making oat milk. In what sense? It was founded in the 90s by Swedish scientists who had discovered that the drink you can make from oats is very good for people who are lactose intolerant. And in the Nordic countries, for a long time, a high percentage of the population has been lactose intolerant. So Oakley was this fringe business marketing oat milk to those poor people that couldn't tolerate proper milk. And then John Schoolcraft's friend was brought in as CEO and he persuaded John Schoolcraft, who was a marketer, to join him in this project. And they sat down and looked at what they'd got and decided that they'd got the answer to a lot of world problems. That oat milk has a very, very small carbon footprint compared to the dairy industry. That oat milk is actually better for you than dairy milk. And so they decided that they would have to be a lifestyle brand and that their corporate mission would have to be effectively to save the world. That they weren't interested in just selling a bit more oat milk. They were genuinely interested in disrupting, not to say ending, the dairy industry. So armed with this, they sat down and they thought, what can we do? And they came up with that branding because they couldn't afford advertisements. So they decided that the packets were the only advertising they could realistically afford. And so the packets would have to look like you couldn't miss an opportunity to pick them up. They had this one slide as their corporate policy, and it's divided into quadrants, with good at the top and bad down the bottom, and scourge shitless on the left and fucking fearless on the right. And he said, the only policy we had, the only strategy, was we have to end up in the right-hand quadrant, where we're good and fucking fearless. 
unlike, say, Monsanto, who are fucking fearless but pretty evil. So that was, that was the only he claimed. Now, we can wonder about how literally we should take his claims, but he said they don't look at any of these things like KPI or ROI, key performance indicators or return on investment. They don't do any of that. They just say we've got to make more milk, more oat milk and products than we can sell. And so they put out these startling adverts, these ones that said, wow, no cow. And they put out one in Sweden which had a big picture of a cow and it had the wrong way, which was feeding oats into the front of the cow and milk coming out the back, and the right way, which was just taking the oats and feed, putting it into bottles. And the dairy industry sued them, a huge court case. And so they responded by putting the legal documents online and putting adverts in all the newspapers pointing, pointing out the fact that they were being bullied. And that's where their sales took off. Now, what, why he said he's not part of the marketing department? They say they don't have a marketing department. They have a very flat structure and anybody makes suggestions and any suggestions that strike them as good get done. So six months ago, somebody who was nothing to do with marketing, but somebody on the secretarial side, said, why don't we put the, our actual carbon footprint on each carton? And John Schoolmaker said, yes, why don't we? And then it took six months of scientific research to work out accurately what the carbon footprint was. Because he said, the one thing we can't do here is bullshit. We can't make something up because then we'll be exactly like all those other brands. We have to, it has to be true. So he went, this was an example of not seeking return on investment in his books. They went off and they started a research program till they were confident they knew what the carbon footprint of a carton of their milk was. And they stuck it on the front. And then not only did they stick it on the front, they then started putting adverts in the paper saying, isn't it odd that milk producers don't put their carbon footprint on the, their own cartons. So this was, you can see this, you can see his uh, presentation on YouTube, and that's just one that was interesting. Not because in an obvious way they were culturally democratic, although he, he says they do have a very flat hierarchy, and the, they don't have a marketing department, they have what he calls a department of mind control, and they just attend meetings. They sit in on all the company meetings and their job is to find things they can talk about on the packets and on the advertisements from listening to the meetings. So they don't have any marketing strategy. Something comes up and they say, hey, we could go with that. So this was interesting because he claimed that it was only... But that is a strategy in itself. Oh, absolutely, yes. It is a strategy. But he says there is no marketing department that come up with ideas and then submit the ideas and then send them out to a branding agency. He said, we've we done all the hand lettering precisely so we can keep it in-house. I just go to the, talk to the CEO and say, this is what we're doing. And he says, yeah, all right. Now, obviously, his presentation might be optimistic. Perhaps if we talk to somebody else from Oakley, they would say, it's sort of like that, but not exactly like that. But what was interesting for me about it was that it, it was very concerned with society and paying back and the fact that, yes, we need to make a profit, but we don't need to, in his terms, fuck people up to make it. So that, that, that one I thought was, was very interesting, just because the atmosphere, it was an example of the atmosphere at this year's slush being radically different from how it was two or three years ago, when it really was like greed is good. So then the second one was Dax De Silva, who I confess I'd not heard of. 
Dax de Silva is the CEO of something called Lightspeed. And Lightspeed is a Canadian company that makes what sounds completely unsexy when you describe it. They make accounting software and marketing software for small businesses. Now, it, this sounds really dull. When, when I, I almost didn't stay for the talk. I was at the talk because I, I'd been at a previous one, so I just sat there, and the inertia made me continue to listen. Because I was thinking, as, as you would in that situation, God, he's going to be talking about spreadsheets and, and point-of-sales terminal software and stuff, and I'm going to be bored within five minutes. But it turned out not to be true, because he again claimed to have and be totally motivated by a social mission. He said the point about this software from Lightspeed is it's affordable. If you run an independent restaurant and you're not part of a chain, or you run an independent grocery shop, or, or an independent hardware suppliers, you're at a big disadvantage compared to Amazon, compared to McDonald's, compared to any large conglomerate that has huge buying power and also has the financial muscle to get state-of-the-art software so that they can run all of these promotions, etc., which you can't. And that's what Lightspeed does. So you can. You can run a one-person food truck and you can use exactly the same class of software as, as the largest restaurant conglomerate in the world. And that's, he says that's what, for the last 15 years, Lightspeed has been developing. It's a, an attempt, it's a David versus Goliath thing because he comes from Canada and he was saying that, um, in his view, communities are important and all communities should be different from each other and all communities should be diverse and that doesn't happen when every high street looks the same. So, to my surprise, it turned out that his, his spreadsheets and point-of-sales software were part, in his view at least, of some global attempt to promote diversity and continue to make sure that we didn't have some sort of monoculture. So then when I thought, OK, this is getting slightly interesting, he started talking about never again, which is, he said, well, so what do you do when you've, you've started this company and it's successful and you've got all the money you need? We were just moving our headquarters to another building because we'd outgrown the previous headquarters. And I looked at the previous headquarters and I thought to myself, wouldn't this make a great play space for adults? Wouldn't this make a great cultural centre where we didn't have any plan but the cultural centre built itself? Wouldn't it be good if I threw lots of money in there to ensure that it did have the capacity to build itself and then just hang around to see what happened? So that's what Never Again is. He's now decided that the next phase of Lightspeed's growth or his personal journey is to construct a model cultural centre which is used by a vast variety of people. Then he, handed, then he said, and anyone who comes to my talk at five o'clock can have a copy of my book. So I thought, OK, I'll have a copy of his book. And his book's called Age of Union, Igniting the Changemaker, and I've got a signed copy. And it's very odd. It's very odd. I'll read the back. Every daily act can be an act of elevation. Age of Union is an impassioned call for leadership, spirituality and environmental guardianship. A guide to spark positive change and unity in an increasingly fractured world. 
Dax De Silva, one of Canada's leading tech CEOs and art entrepreneurs, brings a life of learning combined with present observations to help ignite a movement towards unseparation. Will you join in? <laughs> unseparation, yes. The actual act of actively unseparating things that should never have been separated but have been separated. So in Acts of Union, five chapters including a, a conclusion, but in the fourth one, Acts of Union, there's six sections. Explore a plant-based diet, support animal rights, become a conservationist, become a minimalist, nourish your body and soul, embrace your community. Then the conclusion, two sections, live to bring forth and an age of union. I thought this was quite extraordinary. This seemed to typify, this was the best example I could find, but it seemed to typify a startling shift in the language that was being used by the people on stage in Slush from, from two, three, four years ago. <laughs> What does this mean? I don't know. I, I'll, have, I'll have a look at the book it's, um, and, and check him out. But the, I'm wondering, I guess I'm always really interested in the sort of background uh, structural issues and questions this all brings up and how these examples, although they're, they're kind of almost in the line of corporate social responsibility sort of versions of how to run a company. So you still have your... The structure of the company still remains the same. Okay, it might be more, it might be slightly more horizontal than a hierarchical one, but you still have CEOs, boards of directors who are paid a lot more than the cleaners, for example. And the ownership of the company is not distributed amongst the workers. Its its profit is being extracted for for the minority of um, of owners of the company. And then I guess in that kind of traditional philanthropic model the CEOs and some of the kind of higher paid members of staff grow a conscience um, in terms of environmental awareness cultural awareness social justice awareness and and feel slightly guilty for having kind of basically exploited resources and people over the years and have thought oh I need to give something back I'll put my some of some of my profits obviously not all of them into something that I decide the people need and I decide is a good way of spending my money <laughs> I don't know it just seems I'm being very cynical but unless you actually challenge the structure of the way resources are being and people are being exploited then you'll just end up with the same old version of capitalism which basically which which is what philanthropy philanthropy kind of relies on and although they might have good intentions there's it's essentially it is their intentions that rule what is you know how resources are spent and and um, distributed It'd be really interesting to talk to the people, to the to the cleaners, and to the lowest paid members of staff in these organisations. Obviously, they've probably drunk the Kool Aid as well, and are like because they're treated well and they get I don't know some sort of you know nice coffee for free or whatever in the morning and a, a lifetime prescription to Oatly or whatever. They'll they're probably singing the praises of the company, even though they're not benefiting necessarily you know financially from it in the long run as much as the uh, as the owners of the company are. Anyway, that's my rant over. Owen, <laughs> what did you think? Is that is that? Am I being too cruel? <laughs> no, I don't disagree with with that. Except to say that it's slightly more complicated because Lightspeed isn't a public company. It doesn't have a board of directors. He owns it. It's not yet had an IPO in 
16 or 17 years. So as far as I'm aware, it's still a private company, and whether that changes anything or not, I'm not sure. But it's certainly not the case that he has in shareholders. It doesn't have shareholders. Lightspeed does not have shareholders. He has got investment in the last five years to enable it to grow because he decided that if it didn't grow, it wouldn't do what it was supposed to do and it would end up getting Mm -hmm. pushed to one side by, by bigger companies. So he decided if he wanted to do his mission of helping local, small local businesses, then he'd have to grow to be bigger. But that's quite a lot of it. It, it. He's got an interesting background. I'll give him that. Mm. Both sides of my family are originally from Goa, a small state on the west coast of India. They're, so they're from Portuguese spice traders. His history is from Portuguese spice traders. So his parents were Goan. Uh, they lived under uh, a culture that was Portuguese rather than British. Certainly the British had nothing to do with Goa any more than they had to do with Kerala. Then his grandparents in the 1920s resettled in Uganda to help build the civil service there and then they left they fled when Idi Amin started his civil war they moved to to Montreal then they moved to Vancouver then he was born and he came out as a gay man in his early teens when he'd make Friday night bus rides from the suburbs of Richmond to the Vancouver Gay and Lesbian Centre then he converted to uh, a mystic version of Judaism. And then from his, from his, his Judaism has informed his cultural activism. And the Never Apart Center, which, is, which has now been running for four years, was an outcrop of his vegan Jewish gayness, or his vegan Jewish gay activism, let's just put it that way. He describes himself as an LGBTQ ambassador, a conservationist, a person of faith, and a vegan. So I don't. So this may prove your point rather than disproving it, because I think it cer- it certainly demonstrates that whatever else he is, he's a very unusual person. So his the fact that he has this mission and man- manages to do it from inside capitalism doesn't necessarily say anything about the broader aspects of capitalism. Just that if you have that background and the outlook he has about the sacredness of everything, then you might end up doing something like he's doing. But anyway, my point isn't, isn't that he would uh, necessarily bring an end to capitalism, either on purpose or accidentally, or that he's moving us in the direction of what's something we might call cultural democracy, although I rather suspect that the Never Apart Centre would tick a lot of the boxes that we might want ticking before we said something was culturally democratic. It doesn't have uh, professionals who devise programmes. If I understood it correctly from what he talks about in the book, it's all bottom-up. The community decides the programming. How does this work? He doesn't spell it out in detail, but that seems to be his intention, at least, and the intention of the other people now running the Never Apart Centre. So, again, that struck me as interesting. But what I was... what did Maybe let's get in touch with them, Owen. Yes, indeed. Well, I have indeed had a 15-minute chat with him because when he had his book signing, it turned out there weren't that many people that wanted his book signed. So I actually did have a five- or ten-minute conversation with him. And he did, did seem genuine and interested and interesting and obviously equipped with boundless self-confidence because you would have to be to do all the things he's doing but maybe we could be in touch with the never end never apart never ending never never apart center staff yes and perhaps we perhaps we could contact dax de silva and ask him if he'd like to come on to our podcast in a future episode and explain how he thinks all this works and how he thinks it all ties together
I think it'd, it'd be as interesting to have someone from the Never Apart Centre who's working, who's one of these people at the bottom that are trying to supposedly use his money to do something else with. Who are these people at the bottom that he's giving the money to? Well, two things to say about that. One, I don't think there are people at the bottom in the Never Apart Centre. I think it's very likely staffed. And secondly, if I understood correctly, he is one of these people that, due to his vegan teetotal lifestyle, has boundless energy, and he is heavily involved in the Never Apart Centre. He hasn't funded it. It's what he does from 8 o'clock in the evening through to 2 o'clock in the morning most nights. Oh, uh, OK. It would certainly be worth finding that out. And one of the most interesting things about the book, two, two interesting things about the book. One, the production values are extraordinary, and he commissioned artists to provide the, the illustrations. Some of them are, are very, very good. And the second thing is it moves from one paragraph to another from sounding like clarion calls for change in a spiritual sense, through to sounding like business descriptions. So here's one sentence. Here's one paragraph. Union is a powerful word. It speaks to our yearning to unify our inner separations between body and soul and between thought, speech and action. It appeals to our desire to connect our external separations between cultures and identities, humanity and wilderness, consumption and the environment. This new culture of unseparation will come to life through acts of union, where union reveals itself in the intention we put towards our relationships, conversations and actions. So thank you so much, Owen. That's so uh, interesting. Um, There's much more to discuss, obviously, and, and to explore in these case studies and the wider kind of implications and relationship to what we're thinking about with, with cultural democracy in these different contexts so we will have to pick it up another day um but thank you very much for your insights and for going to the events and um making these connections and we'll see each other soon thank you okay thank you sophie see you soon bye bye henry bye bye sophie